In this episode of STEMiverse, I talk with Meredith Epps. Unfortunately, Marcus was unable to join us as he was stranded at an airport during this interview. Meredith is a teacher with 23 years of experience in K-10 and adult education. She's interested in integrating STEM into classrooms, and she's also working as the New South Wales Project Officer for the CSER program with the University of Adelaide. She speaks regularly at conferences on digital technologies and evolving pedagogies so teachers can future-proof the skills of students. This is STEMiverse episode 13. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Before we get started, dear listener, I must apologize, because in the first minute or so of this podcast, my voice is very distorted, and that's because I didn't check the levels of my microphone properly before starting the conversation. It's only going to be for less than a minute. After that, the levels and the audio quality goes back to normal, so really sorry about that. So Meredith, thank you very much for joining just me today in this episode of Stimulus. Unfortunately, Marcus uh, was trying to get to Melbourne on a plane, but the plane broke down. Marcus is fine, uh, but the flight was cancelled. So it's just us. <laughs> so thank you again for making the time to talk to me. Um, I'd like to get started by um, asking you to take a few minutes and tell us a bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and how your, I suppose, personal history brought you to where you are now in the context of education. Thanks for having me. I suppose it's quite a long story. I'm actually probably an example of people having multiple careers and multiple jobs. I started off as a science degree um, in physical geography and geomorphology. I did biology and genetics. And uh, I also did a diploma of education in primary school teaching and sort of went via primary school teaching because there was no work in science. I did get a job in science eventually, but only for a short contract. And then I left teaching and went into the corporate world and was a computer trainer in the 90s, late 90s. And as a result, the first thing I had to do was sitting on every single Microsoft Office course that they ran, and I had to learn Microsoft Office Suite. And the first course they gave me was Access. (laughs) That was my first um, product. So, and that sort of led into technical writing, which led into working with a group of programmers as their uh, translator. So, I used to go to their meetings and the customer would tell the programmer what they wanted, and I would interpret that into programmer speak and then translate programmer speak back to the regular person's talk. So, and that was a really enjoyable time the technical writing. I worked on the Sydney Olympics and all sorts of internal systems in the city. And when I moved away from Sydney to regional New South Wales, hmm, what can I do for a job? Oh, yeah, I'm a teacher. (laughs) So I ended up about 16 years ago, ended up back in teaching, and that's where I've been. But in that role, I've always been a technical, um, you know, expert, like the computer teacher or 
advising the staff on and upskilling staff on computers. And I think just with the big interest in technology in the last five to ten years, that's really developed from there. And so I've gone back to being interested in coding and not that I was ever a programmer. I was never a programmer. So my programming skills from a programmer's perspective are quite poor. But from, um, you know, I've, I've got basics. So that's sort of, and now it's sort of diverged into making and STEM and all sorts of things. So it's a bit crazy. So you started, like, it's quite impressive. You've got multiple university degrees that go across a wide range of topics. I think you mentioned geography, right? Uh, something called yep. uh, physical geography. Is that what you meant? Physical geography. So it was looking at soils and land processes and uh-huh. uh, how rivers work and uh, how, you know, erosion. And act- so a lot of people with those degrees work in councils or I worked for Sydney Water for a while. Uh, so those sorts of environmental areas, because in the you know early nineties that was a big boom. But by the time I graduated, the the jobs were <laughs> less than they led us to believe. So I was lucky I'd done teaching. I really enjoy teaching, um, but I've enjoyed all the jobs I've done. It's I think it's been a it's created a quite a diverse skill set. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you've got a lot of experience from different places. I'm just curious. You you mentioned that after your various degrees in universities, then you did a lot of corporate training, like you mentioned uh, Microsoft Office. Um, that was corporate. So I guess it was a lot more uh, applied in some way. Could you compare the learning style or teaching style in university versus what you experienced with Microsoft? I worked for a private company and what they used to do was invite people. So we did work for major banks and things where they rolled out a, when they were doing a computer rollout, the staff would come to us for a day and while they were with us, they would often be having their computers replaced and then they'd go back and they'd have the new system. So it was more working with adults was probably the different part to working with primary school teachers um, but as far as what I'm doing with the university now, with the University of Adelaide, it's probably quite similar because I'm working with people who are sometimes very hesitant toward technology, see the importance of it but don't know where to start. So uh, that's probably the similarity. So my, when I did my master's, it was in adult education. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually taught from K to 10 and I've taught adults. So it's- At what point did you decide that you want to become a teacher? Oh, I don't know there was ever a time. I actually did work experience in teaching when I was in year 10. So teaching was something that was always quite appealing to me. But at the same time, it's been a little bit frustrating because it's such a large range of skills with different teachers and even my skills lack in areas, you know, where I haven't because I've been a specialist there are areas which I feel I need more help with in teaching literacy, for instance. You know, that's not something that's a forte for me. Uh, I can do it, but it's not something I'm passionate about. So PE is my, <laughs> I'll give that away any day. <laughs> but, not for everyone. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, yeah, I think I was always interested in teaching. I'd like to take a few minutes and explore your, especially your early years in teaching, if you could place it somewhere in time as well so that the audience can get an understanding of what it was like back then. And then 
I'd like to talk about if there was something equivalent to what today we call STEM back then, or if not, what was technology or science teaching like back then, then contrast it to what is starting to happen today. So what was your early years like? My first year of teaching had a blackboard (laughs) and (laughs) chalk. I hated it. Um, I've always been passionate about teaching science, probably because of my science degree, and I've always been passionate about giving kids a love of science, which is something that a lot of primary schools lack because a lot of primary school teachers don't have a specialty in science. Those teachers do secondary. Um, so in terms of science teaching, I've always had passion. Like I remember my first year, we were building volcanoes with vinegar and bicarbon out of paper mache and we painted the windows, which was quite rebellious of me. We, you know, painted volcanoes on the windows and um, the kids were horrified that we would, I said, don't worry, it will come off. We can wash it. So, you know, razor blades on the last day of term, <laughs> scraping the paint off. <laughs> um so I've probably already always been a little bit of a disruptor <laughs> in that sense. Um, and in terms of technology, we had none. There was none. There was no computers. There was no computer room. And that was in 1995. Okay, that was the early days of the web. Yeah, even in 95, there was no computers at the school I was at. And where was that? Was it in Sydney or in regional? I was, in a, I was at an independent school in Sydney and um, it was just not their priority. And what was science teaching like? Was it like a strict subject? You follow the curriculum? No, I've always been, when I went through uni, I went to Macquarie Uni and they were very passionate at that time about integrated teaching. And I, that's where I sort of decided I was going to be an integrated teacher. And I used to teach, if I was doing volcanoes, Everything was on volcanoes. We read stories about volcanoes and, you know, geography, where are the volcanoes, talking about Pacific Rim and, you know. Could you describe or define what is integrated teaching? Uh, So I would do English content and geography. We talked about where they're located. We didn't just do the science of what they look like and how they're structured and that sort of thing. Um, Then we would, I didn't do maths in that topic, but I've always been quite passionate about covering your doing thematic teaching is probably the older term where you know you have a theme and everything's based around your theme we I'd try and find novel studies that had whatever I was studying um so it's all and now as opposed to now I think you've got a whole range of people who do different things but I'm still a thematic teacher there's thematic teaching like and the kind of teaching where you have a topic and then you try to explore this topic from different perspectives so you can have a look at it from a mathematician's perspective or from the physicist's perspective or from the artist's perspective, but it's still the same topic, right? Yes, that's right. And I'm, I'm a little bit more limited now because, you know, there's multiple class. Well, last year I was on a year four class, which was probably my first time teaching a classroom since... 2003 that was my first time on a class so even last year I wasn't doing thematic for every subject but when we did area I would bring in coding to explore area using like a turtle like program where the turtle would draw the shape and you'd have to calculate the area of the shape and things like that so I still like to where I can 
not just teach exclusive topics, right? We're doing science now. Now we're doing it. I've never been that teacher. So, um, and I think that makes it a lot easier to, in referencing back to your question about STEM, probably makes it a lot easier to do STEM because STEM to me is when you take two or more of the science, technology, engineering and maths and put them together to teach concepts rather than just saying teaching maths and calling it STEM. It's actually doing the maths of science or doing the technology inside maths. So it's about that, still that thematic, but you're drawing on though, they've just put an acronym to it really from my perspective. So it sounds like it is a thematic style type teachings, just that you have emphasized particular disciplines, if I can call them that, I don't like the word that much, but you have emphasized the science, technology, engineering, and math uh, as part of this theme that you are covering in a class, instead of being completely open, as you're probably doing uh, back in the 90s, where you didn't you didn't really think in the context of STEM, you just thought of what would be interesting for the kids to learn by exploring this topic from different perspectives so anything would be possible in that case and open yes yeah and i and i really feel that stem is a label it's because people like steam they like at a conference i was at yesterday someone said lem steam which was (laughs) geography history language they'd put every single kla into this acronym and but really that's what it is you know, using using drones to explore for geography and using 3D printing in history and, you know, it shouldn't be just I'm not the technology teacher, therefore I can't use technology. It's about exploring what's relevant to what you're teaching and that's sort of where I, what I like to do is explore. I wonder back then, um, back in the 90s now, was thematic teaching a thing? Was it prescribed by the DOE perhaps, the Department of Education or was it your initiative to go ahead and do things in a particular way? I think there's a lot of teachers that have always been thematic teachers. I remember having thematic teachers. That, In fact, the teaching the teachers I remember fondly in primary school were the ones that did awesome theme work. And some people even have theme books and, you know. So I'm not alone. There's lots of people who do that. And uh, there's probably just as many people who like to teach things specifically, you know, I teach grammar. Well, I like to teach grammar in the context of the topic that we're doing. So it just makes it, I just think it makes it more relevant. Yeah. Well, how did the students take it? I know they all seem to, they seem to enjoy what we did. So, um, and still, you know, the kids, they love doing things with their hands. And I often find the children who are hard to engage are often interested just as interested as everyone else if you've got hands on and you're busy and you're doing you know there's no time to rest when you're in a classroom that's building and doing yeah i think uh that's the the fact that the attention of children we know how narrow that attention span is if you can capture it by giving them a project that they invest something of themselves in it and I suppose the learning outcomes would be far superior than just uh, look at the blackboard <laughs> and my notes on the blackboard. Yeah, <laughs> I find there is a place for that style of teaching, but that isn't my dominant space. Yeah. What do you think is the, the optimal 
again, not a very good word, but uh, at what age do you think that, say, the thematic type of teaching is more appropriate? Uh, and I say that because we know that as children get older, they become teenagers, and then the, I suppose, realities of life come in, university examinations and all that. I suppose all this type of teaching takes um, second stage, becomes secondary to more rigorous type of teaching. Do you think this, these two can coexist somehow? I do. I do think they can coexist. I mean, it's clearly taught very well from K to 6 and fits very well across that. I think it becomes more difficult in secondary because they have faculties and they divide their subjects by specialists. But there are schools that are starting to reintroduce project-based learning and they call them all sorts of different topics. But I think project-based learning is a form of thematic work in the sense that they develop projects around a theme that then they bring in their science and their maths and their English specialists and they run it together. And I think students, that is a great way for secondary to break down that siloed information that happens in secondary where students go to maths and learn about something in maths and then go to science and the topic is actually the same. It's actually an applied form of maths, yet the kids don't realise it's maths because they're in science. And, and to the point that children often, when they go to science or go to geography, they, for instance, trigonometry. Trigonometry in maths can be applied in geography to calculate slope of landslides or like of hills and calculate the volume of a landslide and all those sorts of things. But they, as soon as they go to geography, they forget their maths because they, they don't realise the connection. So this idea of using project-based learning in secondary, I think, is a great way to break down that barrier. Mm, yeah, no, I personally, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I've experienced it myself, uh, not just as a student, but also as a teacher, that there's always better outcomes when you allow children or students the opportunity to learn by doing something and basically to freely explore. But one problem that I have trouble answering is what happens if the same students need to sit down for a standard examination to enter university, for example, or to get a professional qualification, uh, like a Microsoft exam, for example? How can a student that has been brought up in a way of learning that is a lot freer and personal uh, then somehow narrow their attention to preparing for a single test that expects a particular body of knowledge to have been learned up to a standard. I'm going to say something very controversial. Maybe universities need to reevaluate how they assess because that's just the easy way. That's just the easy way to put people in a box. And I can give you examples of students who have I have been told they can't come and do that enrichment course because they can't read. But when they get there, they've made a 3D printed robot with an Arduino. So how do you assess that? You know, Einstein dropped out of school because he didn't like following the rules. <laughs> and so, how, you know, he was a bad student. He was a terrible student. I wouldn't but that doesn't, mean he, that doesn't mean he wasn't capable. And so 
it's uh, but in saying that there is also examples of schools who implementing there's one in Sydney who's implementing project-based learning from uh, 7 to 10 project-based learning from 11 and 12 they have found and they've been tracking longitudinally their students and they have found their students are still performing at a HSC level and they have a higher rate since implementing this teaching style of employment after Hmm. And they are and they are crediting it. They're giving credit to the fact the students have to stand up, they have to present, they have to understand what they're talking about. So when they go to job interviews, they perform better, and they actually have more workplace relevant skills. So there's no conflict then if change is starting in the earlier years of schooling uh, with um, thematic learning, project-based learning, etc. That should start somehow influencing how universities accept students in their courses, starting perhaps with examination and a rethinking of how examinations and and entering the university system happens. Maybe it's an interview process or maybe it's producing examples of why they should be in that. I mean, I just read yesterday that Australia is third in the list of most innovative countries and I didn't really get to read it properly to find out why we were considered third or how that was assessed, but we were third and we were behind Korea and China, I think, and then it was the US and France and yet we're not performing in the PISA tests as high as we think we should. So does PISA measure the innovation, because in the innovation tests we've been, we've performed highly, but in PISA we're not. So do they match? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do they need to match? Do they need to match? We need to really evaluate what is the purpose of school, Why? what do we want to measure when kids finish school, what should they be able to do? Are we preparing them for workplace? Are we preparing them to be good citizens? What are we preparing them for? Are we preparing them to sit a test? I think the test is what's happening now, at least in my school years. Even though I I had my normal childhood in build curiosity and wanted to discover and learn things, I felt that I had to just uh, focus on watching the textbook and (laughs) everything else was not important just for the duration of preparation, preparing for the exams. No, I agree. I agree. And, And a lot of kids don't perform. Yeah, it's no, no wonder. I know that in the US and top universities like Stanford University, MIT, and there's a few others there in the list, portfolio-based entry uh, is possible. So a student that has got projects built over the, the last 10 years as a student or as an undergrad, sorry, uh, before entering the university, I can just put everything in a portfolio and then show the, as was it called, acceptance committee. It's a committee that uh, looks at those portfolios and this is what I've done. Um, there's no examinations involved. Is something like that, to your knowledge, starting to happen in Australia? Uh, the University of Newcastle does that. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of students that get pre-acceptance into Newcastle before they've done their HSC at the school I'm at. Could you tell us how that works? Like uh, a student today, how can they prepare based to take advantage of that new system or method of entry? Uh, I'm not sure how they access it. I presume you would just ring the university and ask. But particularly for medicine, they are taking people based on interview for medicine as well as your exam marks. And so I think what they're looking for is doctors with a bedside manner. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. 
It, it does. So um, I think it's a great thing. I think it's very um, exciting for students who aren't necessarily expecting to perform at 100 in HSC or to high 90s. I wonder the particular faculties in the University of Newcastle that would rather take somebody in because of the portfolio work rather than exams. Like I know that at MIT and Stanford engineering uh, faculties uh, are like that, so they're looking at portfolios. What is it like in Australia? Well, I don't know. I only know of Newcastle, University of Newcastle, so I would love that. I think that would be a fantastic thing. I've got a student who was getting special special education support for reading right through his primary years. I taught him in year eight. Uh, he created for me a remote control lawnmower. <laughs> I need one of those. <laughs> he found he found the lawnmower on the side of the road rebuilt it mechanically, attached the remote control structure um, and then videoed himself, but he was walking around behind the lawnmower. <laughs> he was following it around. So he testing. was mowing, yeah, testing it. <laughs> and I said, aren't you supposed to be sitting up on the uh, up on the deck? He said, I had to make sure there was no sticks and, you know, you had to check it wasn't running over something. So Yeah, no, perfect candidate for an engineering faculty, I think. He's talking aer- or an aeronautical engineering. He's actually he actually got his pilot's license before he got his driver's license. But you can think about uh, how many different, I suppose, things that same person would be very good at. It wouldn't be just in engineering. But I'm thinking in business, in innovation, um, in in software development. Um, there's just so many th- different attributes that have to come together in order for somebody to build a gadget, a working gadget like that. That's right. That's right. And that, they're sort of starting to now talk about careers in terms of job clusters mm. because skills can transfer. Well, you know, teaching computer skills in the city also transfers into teaching anything, really. Uh, so there's the job clusters, but then you could also move into training within the corporate or in industry. Or So talking about flexibility, really, it just... If, if you learn, if you are taught in, in such a way where naturally a lot of different disciplines come into play to do anything, then you are becoming a far more flexible person going forwards in, in, in a future that is far from certain, right? The, the future could be anything tomorrow. Nobody really knows what it's going to be like. So you are building flexibility into the system. I think that's what we need to do. Yeah. So... I wonder now, so you, you've done your teaching for what, about 10 years? How long have you been a teacher? If you include my adult ed, um, probably heading up to 30 years. <laughs> no, no, not that long, 25 maybe. Still extensive experience. <laughs> yes, but that, in, that includes across a whole range of industries. Yes. So I've taught, you know. So you've got a, a wide range of experiences, not just in terms of the, the amount of time that you spend as an educator, but... Of also the you know the edges of students, the topics that you've taught, and the methodologies you've used. So now you are in the University of Adelaide. Is that correct? I work for the University of Adelaide. Adelaide. I'm the New South Wales Project Officer. Can you tell us a bit about that and and what you're working on at the moment? Uh, so I'm the New South Wales Project Officer, and we received federal funding uh, for to provide free support within each state 
with it, with our project officers' roles. So there's one of me in every state. Uh, the course has been around since about 2014 and it's always been free. It's a MOOC, Massive Open Online Course. And the funding allowed the university then expand it and provide face-to-face support and we also offer a lending library. So the lending library is uh, available to any school to borrow. We do have a prioritised list. So if they've signed up for our course and headed toward completing our course, uh, if they're low socioeconomic, uh, so the ICSIA number on my school website would be less than 1,000 and they have a higher Indigenous population. So uh, we look for 25 or more students in the school, but if they're a small school, it comes down to the ratio, the percentage of students. So you're trying to make sure that um, groups of people that potentially um, not privileged um, they have some sort of handicap. I'm not sure if that's uh, the wrong word, but you are seeking to provide additional help to such groups. Additional help for schools that yeah are low funded or have a lot high disadvantaged background of students. Um, sometimes it's about being remote. Uh, if they're very remote, we've got some some schools that are in very far western New South Wales. Uh, or central Central Australia, high, uh, north of Western Australia. So there's lots of places, and we and we go there. So we're we're all part time. We're all three days a week, and have other jobs as well. Most of us, and we travel. So yesterday I was in Lismore. The day before that I was in Coffs Harbour. Um, a couple of weeks ago I was in Wollongong. So what is the? Can you tell us about the the MOOC and what is the course about? Uh, why would a student, uh, a teacher, sorry, uh, be interested in it? So the course is teaching teachers about computational thinking, and computational thinking is the one of the reasons we teach coding and robotics. So it's the thinking process that goes into solving problems and working out the algorithms or procedures to solve problems that we have, and we're teaching computer coding and robotics but computational thinking is actually the thinking style that we're teaching by teaching those there's not many courses like ours or one it's free in new south wales it's 21 hours of professionally endorsed hours with new south wales anessa and it assumes no knowledge so the fact that it assumes no knowledge and it also doesn't assume that it doesn't assume that you're going to become a um, programmer it's designed for teachers. It develops the language around computational thinking. It has a module on what is visual coding and why would you teach it and how do you do it. It has curriculum links. Um, it is based in the Australian curriculum because that's what the majority of the country uses. Uh, but it does, um, we're in the process of mapping the New South Wales curriculum to it just for information purposes for New South Wales teachers, but it is an Australian curriculum course and the Australian curriculum, the digital technologies component, will soon be inside the New South Wales science and technology syllabus. So it's not really optional anymore. It's not an option. It's actually required. Computational thinking is now a requirement. I think it's explicitly stated that it is an outcome that we're looking for. In, New, in the Australian curriculum, it is mentioned many, many times. Why is it so important? 
Why is it important? Yeah. Uh, it's important because I think they're looking at the future of jobs and the future employability and so what skills are students going to need in 10, 15, 20 years? And I was at a conference at Google and they predict that within 15 years every single job will be computer science plus whatever your career choice is. So it's no longer I'm going to be a fashion designer because the fashion designer is going to use virtual virtual reality to display their dresses or augmented reality to experience a, a catwalk or, you know, there's 3D printing and all that goes into every single career. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, um, whether you like it or not, you have the robotics and the automation of society that is just on the horizon. So who is going to service those robots? Who is going to program those robots? Who is going to design those robots? So there's all these new types of jobs that are coming up and that creates with that a whole social issue for society of job loss and new jobs and there's a lot of fear around that. But we will need to understand problems and how do we solve those problems. So I think it's good to expose children to that. I think it's quite important, in other words. <laughs> I'm thinking um, the big push in universal literacy uh, in at least in Western societies, and probably this, I shouldn't say that, I use the word like globally, uh, in, in uh, developing societies, 18th, 19th century uh, urbanization, I think, and uh, industrialization required everybody to be able to read, do a bit of writing as well, and some simple calculations. So there was um, a huge drive around the world for governments to do that. Now we're going through a, a similar, perhaps I think more dramatic transformation in societies where automation, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics completely transform the way that we live. So the new literacy there, the new literacy standard is not just being able to read and write, but also to understand how computers work. And that's where computational thinking comes in. It just gives you such a huge advantage in understanding how the world works. We can break things into little steps and find associations and rules. And and basically, that's how computers work. I totally agree. So do you think that um, Australia is heading the right way? And if yes, is it fast enough or do we need to do things faster or differently? What do you think? I don't know if we're discussing it enough because it's going to impact on everybody and there's still a lot of people who don't even realise it's happening. Hmm. So I, I think we're, doing, we're, try, we're trying hard and we're having a good go, but we need a lot of PD for teachers. We've got a lot of teachers that need upskilling in this area and I don't know if it's been prioritised enough by with government funding and with, you know, uh, structure of schools and things. And it really comes down to the principal. The schools with a principal that understand the issues, those schools are going ahead. Are there special programs for principals like they are for teachers? <laughs> well, we speak at principals network meetings. We speak at lots of different meetings, but I, I'm not aware of any special programs for principals other than their their network meetings that they have. Right, yeah. So I suppose uh, we are heading the right direction. It's just we need more, we need faster, 
as you mentioned earlier, when we compare Australia to other countries around the world, at least that they, if you use innovation as a metric, Australia is doing really well. So I suppose there, there is success there. Uh, and I agree with you, like what I see around me is a lot of really passionate and interested people and uh, a lot of systems that are being put in place and designed today. So, but we need more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it'll ever be fast enough, though. No. I don't. I don't know if faster is better. I mm. think we just need knowledge, and we need the community to talk about it. We need people to talk about what are we going to do when jobs are automated. What are we going to do with those people? What are we going to do with the people who can't get work because they're not skilled in the right areas? So there's lots of social issues I think that are around this that truly need to be discussed, and there are people who are doing that. Um, but I'm just not sure if it's broad enough. Do you feel that teachers that are coming out of um, teaching courses are ready for the kind of teaching that will be required of them as soon as they basically hit a classroom? I am quite aware of some universities that are doing a good job with training up their teachers, their pre-service teachers, but my experience with PRAC students is mixed. So when you have the pre-service teachers come to you, that's a mi- they're mixed. So some are really good, some are really keen, some not so much. And I think it, it's going to be on the schools to train those people when they get jobs. Let's uh, let's stay on this for a little bit longer. What how would you advise uh, a new teacher? So say a teacher that's about to graduate and um, get into a classroom. How would you advise such a person to? skill up or train or prepare for what's coming towards them? Do our course. (laughs) Yeah, good place to start. So they could do our course uh, because it's free and um, it will give them one extra thing that the other person doesn't Mm -hmm. have. Um, Another is get a good mentor. Hmm. Find someone in the school if you're in a school or find someone, you know, who you know, who is good at technology, they don't necessarily even have to be a teacher. If you need if you need technology skills, find someone who does and maybe try and get some lessons. Or in the absence of that, YouTube is a great thing. Yep. <laughs> Coursera. I'm doing a course with on Coursera at the moment on tinkering. And I downloaded all the videos onto my phone and pressed play when I drove to Sydney the other week <laughs> and just listened to them. I didn't watch them, I just listened. And, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to upskill yourself, but I think it is a priority. And given that the new syllabus uh, is being endorsed for 2019, uh, it would be definitely a time to make sure that is a priority for all teachers, Um, particularly if they're looking for promotion or to move around schools, that would make you exceptional. So you don't have to wait, in other words, we don't have to wait for somebody to come and say, hey, you need to reskill in this or upskill in that. You can go to this thing called the internet, which has, a, there's been an explosion of really good educational content in places like Coursera, for example. In my case, it's Udemy. You can just preempt others and do what you preach and self-educate. And And if you don't want to do a course because you don't have time, Social media, I have learned so much from Twitter and from people on Google Plus and um, just connecting with people online uh, and following people who share. 
So if you can, Pinterest is another great place. Find people who share and follow them and it gives great ideas. You can say, oh, I really like that, but I might change it because I don't have those resources or whatever. But I think social media is a crucial thing for teachers to be able to connect with other like-minded people because often currently there are a lot of teachers in the schools who are a lone ranger. They're the only one. Yeah. Well, I know that you are very fond of Twitter. Can you tell us how you use Twitter in the context of your work in education? So when I started, I was very much like everyone else. I didn't know what to tweet and I didn't know how to do it. Uh, so I just watched for a long time. I followed people for a long time and didn't say anything. And then someone said to me how valuable they thought it was and how they used it to get answers to questions they couldn't find an answer on Google for. And then I discovered chats. So I started joining it on chats and they are regular topics that are you know happen at a certain time each week and it's every week like a television show and you just join in and you do the hashtag and somebody posts questions and everybody answers the questions so it's like the q a on abc tv right yeah exactly <laughs> and but what happens is you have to be careful because sometimes you get sidetracked on this little branch where you you end up talking to three people about and going back and forth because it's only a few hundred and fifty five characters you're a bit limited so that that's how I got started and then now what I do is if I find something that I think is great I share it and I write blog posts and I uh, if I find some great things on Pinterest I'll share those and I just tweet resources and tweet interesting things so I was at a conference this week so I, I had a hashtag so I was tweeting toward the hashtag it's a great way to curate chronologically and then you can favorite things that you want to keep it does get quite enormous, so you do have to manage manage it. It's not a permanent curation. It's a temporary thing that you can go and go back to and then, you know, store it somewhere else. So I thought uh, because I, I'm not as prolific on Twitter as you are, um, the thing about Twitter is that I find it very ephemeral. So it's like um, if, you, if you're not there when somebody tweets something, you said you missed it forever, uh, but... Do you use Twitter as a notepad? So here's a good idea. I'll tweet about it, and then I can always go back and check my own tweets and use it as a bookmark, perhaps, for a thought. Would that be a good use for it? When I'm at a conference, I sometimes do that, and then you can use a tool like Storify or uh, something to then chop that part and put it into a link. And someone who does that quite well is Aussie Ed. Aussie Ed, yeah. Aussie Ed every Sunday night has a chat, and they will storify their chat every week and so if you want to go and look at that chat you can go back and they they've just extracted those tweets for that time it's not a good thing to do over a long period of time though so if you go to a conference and you tweet your notes um you you really do need to go and extract those and do something with them otherwise a week later there's too many things gone and you if you're a frequent tweeter you just can't find it yeah so there's this twitter um, you mentioned Pinterest as well. Why would you use Pinterest? So Pinterest Pinterest is a bookmarking tool and you bookmark via the picture. So if I've found a website that has some great projects on using Ozobots, for instance, then and there's a picture on that page, you can pin that picture to a board. 
So on my Pinterest, I've got boards on all the different types of digital technologies that I explore and use. And so I catalog them by type of technology. And then Pinterest itself is like this massive, you can live in Pinterest for weeks if you really want to because it's um, just so massive. It's very visual, yeah. It is very visual. I'd, I'd like to ask a few I suppose, closing questions next. So we call these uh, rapid fire questions. So uh, rapid fire from my end, and then you can take as much time as you need to answer. But usually it's not that much time that we need to spend on each question. So I'd like to know if there are any such people uh, who was the one or two living or dead person or people that have really influenced the way that you especially teach but also think? I'm actually really inspired by amazing women in the past. So people like Ada Lovelace and the women in Hidden Figures who continued to achieve and work on in their projects and their work without acknowledgement. And they and and it's really pleasing to see that they're being acknowledged now in the past for the past. Um, but I really get inspired by women who just um, are achieving regardless. Yep. So a bit of girl power. <laughs> Great. Yeah, we need more of that. Could you tell us about other Lovelace, Lovelace for people that don't know who she was? She has a book, and they even celebrate her birthday. She was working with Charles Babbage, who is credited with creating the first computer, but she was asked to transcribe his work. But when she transcribed it, it came back two-thirds bigger than when he'd written it. So she's actually credited with writing the first programming languages. I think that's what she's... The first programmer is the way that I know the story... Ada Lovelace is the first programmer. Before there was even a computer. Before there was such a thing as a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's just her her theoretical understanding of what Charles Babbage was trying to do. And so he's credited, I think, with the first computer-like machine, which I believe they've got a replica in the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. But her work was never acknowledged in the context of that project and it's only really been recently that she's been acknowledged. Great, yeah. No, she's a great example for pioneer in, in technology. That, that uh, There's a lot more women in that like Lovelace, but, Lovelace, sorry, but they have been acknowledged, as you say. So that's a great example to bring up. Well, Cobol was written by a woman. Yep. <laughs> and uh, she was, I think she was in the American military or the marines or something and she was actually given a presidential award by obama just a couple of years ago and obama actually acknowledged quite a lot of awesome women in technology when he did his presidential medals and uh it'll be interesting to see if that that pattern is continued i'm sure it will and actually uh so the name of the lady that she was just talking about her name is grace murray hopper so she is the inventor of the COBOL computer language at the age of seven. And I'm, I'm reading out of uh, womeninventors.com, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> at the age of seven, she dismantled her alarm clock to figure out how it worked. I've done the two, actually. I was 10. <laughs> I was 10. Uh, but wasn't able to reassemble it. <laughs> it's exactly what happened to me as well. Well, this is quite interesting. So there you go, women uh, minus, minus sign inventors.com and uh, look up a lot of other women uh, like Grace Murray Hopper. 
Great. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, another question, very important. What app, application, can't you live without? Is there any application like an Evernote, perhaps, or Twitter? I'm going to say Twitter. I'm going to say Twitter, but I'm actually going to say the folder on my phone that contains <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, great, Google+. Plus, All YouTube. your social apps. <laughs> All my social media. I, I have been known to post into a Google Plus community a question, go to bed, wake up in the morning, and I'll have three replies <laughs> with answers that work. Is that really work or is it you? I, I think I'd probably do social media regardless. Yeah. It's, I really like it. I love, I love meeting people virtually and then going to a conference and meeting them in person and finding out I actually really like them as well online and in person. It's a good way to introduce and find out about people that you can always meet in real life. How do you organise your busy schedule though? Uh, social media? Uh, no, in, in general, yeah, look, your business work schedule, you know, the notes that you take, your readings, uh, your writings, all that. I tend to use a lot of, I use the Google app suite mm. a lot. Um, I think if I was in a school with Microsoft, I would love OneNote. I don't use OneNote because my school doesn't have Microsoft, but I am a bit of a Microsoft fangirl. Well, the, the equivalent to OneNote, if you're interested, is Evernote, which I use and I find very good. I have used that. I have, I've sort of, I sort of touch on a lot of things. And I also like my notes app on my, on my phone. Yes, simple On stuff. my iPhone. Yeah, just, just so I can quickly take a note and then I can do something with it later. It's important to have something to keep these, these fledging thoughts coming and then disappear within seconds. So you need to have something. Yeah, that's right. Quickly. I'm just going to write that down quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, just one more question. I'm curious. Um, you've had, it seems like you've, you're always at a conference or some kind of event or something like that. Could you think of one or two events, could be conferences, could be smaller per year, that teachers should really attend and make an effort to go? Well, if you're looking for free things, I don't think you can go past Teach Meets. I really like Teach Me, Teach Meets. So in Sydney and in capital cities, there's a lot of Teach Meets and often they're cross-sector Yeah. and they're often promoted via social media. So once again, if you, you should really have FOMO if you're not on social media because you are missing out big time. <laughs> um, so Teach Meets are free and I find I learn lots from those types of conferences. Do they have a website for people to look up? It's Teach Me Sydney Wiki Spaces, TM Sydney. Ah, yes. So it is tmsydney.wikispaces.com. Uh, in terms of big conferences, I'm feeling like big conferences are currently becoming very commercial mm -hmm. and it's about buying stuff rather than learning. The trade shows. Yeah, so I, I would be looking at I would be looking at conferences that have hands on. Sure. So, yeah. you know, some some oh, the GAFE Summit conferences are quite good if you're a Google school that they uh, have lots of hands on activities. But I really I don't know. It's hard to say. It depends how much money you've got. There's been there's a lot of good stuff happening. Start with Teach Meets. I would start with Teach Meets because there was also um, something called Meetups. Yes. That I've just found, and so I'm going to my first meetup in September, um, and they they appear to be free too. And you go to the meetup website, and you can join all the groups that you're interested in. 
Yeah, I've been attending meetups for maybe six or seven years now uh, in, in various topics, in, including technology, of course. There's STEM, robotics education, meetups in Sydney, uh, a lot of programming languages. If you're interested in computational thinking and you want to pick up a new programming language, like whether it's Python or Ruby or whatever it might be, it's worth checking those meetups out as well. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, I wonder, uh, any books, one or two books that you would recommend to people? To upskill or just to read? Either, actually. <laughs> I, I'm actually just in the process of looking for some books to buy and all of my books that I'm looking for are STEM and STEAM-based, project-based books. I'm just looking for different ideas and things that I can use. But I actually don't mind the book Hello Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, Hello Ruby is a fiction story with little activities in the back and it's good for teaching offline skills to to children as young as, I would say even as young as kindergarten. Hmm. And you read the story and then you can do the activity in the back and it's got little paper dolls that you can cut out and and give to, for the kids to make their own patterns and pr- problems. So I, I like it. I like things that engage girls uh, because... I really see that as a big priority for uh, the future of computing and engineering is is increasing participation of girls. So I really like things that have that attraction. I like the series, and I can't think what the author's name is, but um, Rosie Revere, the engineer, and Iggy Peck, the architect, and Ada Twist, the scientist. So I'll have to, I just have to look up the author's name. But they're good for design thinking and talking about STEM and STEAM in the context of literacy and that's a bit that thematic teaching coming out again do you find time to read a lot or little uh well if you look at those books they're not very thick (laughs) i'd read blogs bite-sized books (laughs) yes picture books um i read blogs i i find people who post blogs if there's a blog posted on social media and then i'll read that because i feel it's readable it's plain language it takes you 10 minutes to have a quick read through. They've got links and it's contextual. So I tend to read a lot of blogs. Well, thank you, Meredith. I think uh, we can close here. And um, I'd like to ask you, how can people get in touch with you? Now, we're probably going to say social media, right? <laughs> I'm going to say social media. <laughs> so I'm on every platform pretty much. If they would like to contact me about the university, and having me come to their school or having my equivalent in another state come to their school, uh, that's all free. There's no charges. So they could contact me through the csermooks.adelaide.edu.au site, which I've sent to you. I've shared my electronic portfolio with you so that you might like to include that in your notes as well. But I tend, if they write to me on social media, I tend to write back. And I'm... I don't. I like connecting with people. I think that's. I like the social part of, you know, online. Are there any hashtags in particular that you are filtering for, or just uh, tweet you, tweet, tweet to you? Uh, no, just tweet, tweet me, tweet me, <laughs> okay. and uh, I'll tweet back. If because if you follow, if you follow, then you can direct message. Yes, great. And then once I've done that, then I would share my email and things like that. Great, so easy. Well, thank you, Meredith. Uh, It's been a pleasure and uh, it was a really nice discussion. I really enjoyed it. Good. I've enjoyed it too, actually. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. That's all for this episode. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.